the people that I knew at the time who really made it big quit the inchworm ladder of moving up in the entertainment business. So a lot of us were at the same place. We were all like story editors at the studio or writer's assistants or assistants, you know, that kind of level. In fact, I was kind of ahead of all of my peers in the sense I was a story editor and a lot of people were just development assistants, but they made the very conscious choice to say, okay, I'm going to quit doing this and I'm going to start writing my own stuff and I'm going to start making my own films, you know, and that's a, that's a very scary thing to do. And I remember saying to somebody, I don't know what you're doing. I think you should just get a job. And literally that person is probably the most successful executive producer right now. I mean, it's crazy. And, but you have to make that sacrifice, I think, if you want to go that route. Hey guys, welcome back to Playground. On this episode of Playground, I have with me Brian Tollison, who has been my mentor for the past couple of years and who I've been keeping in frequent contact with. Brian, how have you been over quarantine? Uh, I've been good. Um, you know, it's been uh, a strange time, I think, for everybody. It's certainly been a busy time. Uh, work-wise, we do community and social impact work, so it's been um, really hectic. Um, but I, uh, you know, despite, I think, the challenges in getting work done, at, you know, I've enjoyed being able to do some work from home, spend a little more time with my family and my dog. It's been good. That's good to hear. I'm happy you found like that, the, the work-life balance still, that how much as you could get it in this time. I want to start off with asking, where is home for you and where did you grow up? So I sort of lived between Atlanta, Georgia, and the mountains of uh, South Carolina and North Carolina. Um, I grew up uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I was born in Atlanta, went to Emory, uh, where you go in um, in Atlanta, and then uh, moved to the West Coast to Los Angeles and then New York. But uh, Atlanta's still home, and uh, I think it always will be. That's good to hear. Uh, you said mountains in northern Georgia and like Updale. So do you visit those mountains often? Like, is that like a little like space for you to be with yourself and understand, like, be be with yourself with nature and like take a break from the busy work life you have? Yeah, I, I mean, I realized a couple of years ago that, um, you know, getting in touch with sort of wild places and um, nature on a regular basis was something I had to do to stay healthy work-wise and life-wise. Um, if I'm sort of separated from that too long, I lived in Manhattan for many years and it, you know, almost wrecked me mentally just because I had, I just didn't have enough contact with sort of more wild spaces. Um, so that's been really important for me. So I, um, uh, and my husband actually, when we sold our last business, moved to the mountains full time. So I, uh, I also go there to see him. That's nice, that, that must yeah. be nice. What did or do your parents do for a living? So my mom was a teacher. She was a teacher for 35 years, um, mostly elementary school um, and uh, mostly in public school. Uh, she was sort of an amazing educator and always won, you know, teacher of the year. Um, I was lucky enough to go to school with her for a little bit before I moved to private school. But um, yeah, and then my dad was an entrepreneur, just like his dad was. Um, and um, he was a, like a mechanical engineering company. They did, you know, like ventilation and HVAC for 
big buildings and big houses. Uh, do you think he got like that entrepreneurial spirit from your dad? Because I know currently right now you, you found a couple of businesses and like you're a CEO of a business. Where, where do you think that entrepreneurial spirit came from? From your dad or something else? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of funny because, you know, both uh, my dad and my maternal grandfather and my uh, dad's father were all entrepreneurs. Like we really haven't had, I haven't known anybody in my life who has like a job job. Um, from that perspective. And also from my uncles, my three uncles, who are the other sort of male role models in my life, they were also all three entrepreneurs. Uh, one was a lawyer, very successful lawyer. Uh, the other was a very successful developer and builder. Um, and the other one uh, kind of took over my mom's dad's electronics business. Uh, he, he sort of brought TVs to the South um, and did a lot of, um, you know, he did the sound at the Fox and the Omni and all those kind of things. He was sort of, uh, and he actually did the original, like I so said, the premiere of Gone with the Wind was in Atlanta and it was the first sort of sync sound major release. And my, my grandfather did that too. So I, I, I had, I had no one in my family who like had a job, you know, and had worked for a company. So I didn't, I didn't really know that. And I don't think I, because I started, when I first started out, I worked for big companies. I worked for CA, which is like a big talent agency. And then I worked for Columbia Pictures. So I had a job job when I first started, but it just didn't really fit me culturally and what I had ever known um, from the people around, and, you know, certainly for the male role models in my life, I just didn't have, um, have a sense of what having a job would look like as an adult. That's very unique because many, most individuals in the U.S. or like in the world have role models who have jobs, but you have yeah. role models who had, who are entrepreneurs, which is very unique <laughs> in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. Um, and it was great too, because I think I learned a lot just by living around mm -hmm. those people um, in my life that I, and probably things like I'm not even conscious that I know um, just from, you know, having generations of entrepreneurs teach me you know things i definitely want to go back to that idea right there but first i wanted to ask you so like living in atlanta what were you curious about as a child i sort of had three pretty major interests in my life when i was a kid um and i already mentioned like my love of nature and like nature was definitely like top of the list i spent pretty much every second of my childhood outside um my brother and i lived uh, i mean i say at atlanta but we actually grew up between Fayetteville and Peachtree City in this sort of no man's land at the time. It was, I mean, we lived on a farm basically and it was, you know, lots of acres and space. I mean, we weren't farmers, but we had a lot of land. Um, and, you know, there were creeks and, you know, we built forts and tree houses and, you know, I spent just a lot of time outside. Um, and then, I was also really interested in filmmaking, uh, you know, kind of video cameras were new when I was growing up and, um, and maybe they were huge, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I was lucky in the sense that my parents um, got me one pretty early on and I filmed like nonstop and I was obsessed with, you know, doing special effects with um, like my new video camera had like this floating erase head. So it let me like make people disappear. Um, I was really big into that. Um, and then uh, also into computers, like I was into computers in a big way. I, um, and, you know, when I was growing up, it was like basic, like we were programming in basic and I would go to like computer camp and learn how to like program computers. And, 
you know, it's been like two days programming something and it would just like print my name on the screen and that was huge, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that, those were sort of my three big childhood interests. I was definitely not into sports. Like I was not, I mean, I played soccer, but I was, I was on the least like championship soccer team, but I was terrible, but I was on the defense and they were so good on offense that <laughs> the ball never came to me. So I was like state champion soccer player, but only because I happened to get on this team and not, and they all knew how terrible I was. <laughs> I mean, I knew how terrible, I mean, everybody, I mean, it was just sort of everybody knew, but it didn't matter. Um, but I was also like a big sort of cheerleader for the team in that sense. Like, so I sort of knew how, I learned how to kind of not be the reason for the success of something, but also it's kind of be a cheerleader for the team because I was definitely not part of the success. In fact, they were only successful because it never came, the ball never came to me. Okay. Okay. I want to explore the three things you mentioned. And then of course, what you yeah. studied at Emory and then your career, of course, but why I'm also very enthralled with nature. I love being in nature. I love the water specifically, like hearing the ocean water, like a creek or a waterfall or anything. So what about being in nature makes you feel calm and relaxed? Like what's your favorite part of nature and why do you think that you tend to like be attracted to it? You know, I thought a lot about that, like sort of why. And I, I, I think it is because it was where I spent my childhood. So I think whenever I'm sort of back in nature, I sort of do reconnect to like the childhood version of myself when I do that. But um, yeah, uh, and but I'm definitely more of a mountain person than a beach person. And okay. I actually believe like philosophically, you're one or the other. Like <laughs> you're either a mountain and lake person, which is me or you're a beach and ocean person, which is not me. Um, when I'm at the ocean, I don't feel like I'm outside. I feel like I'm around sharks and uh, jellyfish and stingrays. Like I don't get the same like calm Euphoria. that I have when I'm, on, when I'm in the mountains, not at all. In fact, like I'm, I'm not a good ocean person. Like I really, um, just the smell of the ocean is enough to make me a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So um, and then mostly, like, I mean, I think that's childhood too, because like, I grew up going to, my parents had a beach place, and I grew up kind of going to the beach, and I was stung by jellyfish so many times, I can't even tell you, that I just hated it, um, and I saw Jaws, you know, at a sort of impressionable yeah. age too, I think, yeah. That's good, that's good, that's a good answer, but the mountains, and then, because it goes back, I asked you why, and it's the why is the childhood, because you lived up in the mountains yeah so when you talked about filmmaking the only thing i could think about was youtube like youtube creators who like make youtube films have you thought or like early on like when you started doing it like have you thought of like posting videos like what type of videos did you do and like could you explain if you can or if you could remember like the creative process behind that or, like what kind of street tell stories would you video processing as a child oh, oh yeah oh yeah yeah um uh, and when we made videos, there was definitely no YouTube. I mean, you know, like I said, I was programming in basic. Like I, you know, I think we had dial up internet, like that could get you to like a bulletin board. Like it was not even, I mean, we had CompuServe was the name of our um, internet service and you dialed in not to like the internet, you dialed into this closed network. It was mm -hmm. called CompuServe. Um, but uh, so there's nowhere to post or share. I mean, I would, we would make videos and then we would, we would sort of like, it was, that was kind of how like I would spend time with my friends together uh, was like, okay, we would all kind of come over to my house and then we would 
organize and sort of plan like a movie or uh, you know a story and costumes were a big part of it so we I had like a giant you know thing of and, and I say costumes I mean it was like my mom's graduation robe you know was like a judge's thing you know yeah. and then so we would um and you know every Halloween costume we'd ever had was like all in a bag and so you would sort of also plan with the resources you had so it was like you know if we didn't have the costume for it it wasn't going to be in our in our film so I sort of I mean I guess process-wise actually I kind of learned how to work with what you have um because we did you know uh you know and there would be some times where we didn't have like any girls come over so it was just like all guys so like some of the guys would have to be girls you know so because yeah. you just sort of had to work with what you had yeah I'm, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wait I'm gonna slowly build up to like the big question of how like all of this influences like entrepreneurship and like your current life right now but I do want to ask you when you came to Emory with like these three childhood interests what did you what did you intend to study in Emory and like how did that like well how was your experience at Emory basically from your childhood um, to college like, I knew I wanted to go to Emory I mean I when I the first time I visited the campus I was like this is the place for me there's just no question about it the size was right um I think I was comfortable being in Atlanta as opposed to traveling to another city and being kind of far from my family um but it also felt like you were a world away. So all of those things were great. And I, I was pre-med when I started at Emory. I was pretty sure that I was gonna be a doctor. And I don't know why I, you know, part of it had to do with biology. Like I was very, uh, I took a lot of biology classes in high school and I was very good at biology. Like, you know, we did our AP biology one and two or whatever. And I, you know, I got like the highest score on those. Like I, I was very good at biology and I kind of thought, well, that's what people who are good in biology do. You become a doctor. Um, also, doctor was sort of the only tangible job you could really, I mean, I think a lot of people going into college, like that's like a tangible job. You know, all the other jobs are just sort of, you know, you don't know them. And my parents were very much, even though they were entrepreneurs or, you know, my mom was a teacher, but my dad was an entrepreneur. It was very important for me to have like a job that I was going for. Like, they did not encourage me to get around to education and become an entrepreneur. Like that was not, even though that was their entire history and, you know, and I think it's because they thought being an entrepreneur was just sort of something they fell into um, and that smarter people planned for a career. I don't know. Um, I know. And they had all gone to college yeah, yeah. too, but it was just, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause I never heard of it like that. But I always thought like, the smart individuals, especially in this time and in, in my era, at least, were all entrepreneurs because they are smart. They're planning ahead, and they're planning a business. And then the ones who aren't, quote unquote, that smart enough would fall into like a career or like a normal career. But I haven't even thought about it the other the other way around, where like being an entrepreneur, you just fall into it and just it just you learn as you go or like you learn as you do it kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very much like, you know, I think, particularly for my father, less for my grandparents, but like my father did really fall into entrepreneurship because, you know, his, his, that's sort of what he knew from his father. And he sort of felt like, I don't know, he, I think he thought he was going to take over his father's business, but then his father didn't let him take over his business. <laughs> so um, he had to build his own business. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, they did think that 
smart people made plans for, you know, a career. And entrepreneurship was not, you know, really wasn't, they weren't like, oh, another entrepreneur in the family. They were like, oh, you gotta, you gotta have a job. You know, that was really my parents' point of view. So you came into Emory thinking biology pre-med and then what happened? And then from Dale, like, how did you take that leap or like the leap of faith or like the jump from science classes pre-med to whatever you did after that? Yeah, so I definitely um, hated organic chemistry and it was like the class that was like, you, this is not for you. Mm-hmm. Um, also my sweet mate was like also pre-med and he was very good at organic chemistry and he was like, you know, studying all the time. And I was like, I can't, I can't study like that. I can't, this is just not me. Um, and uh, I, I was miserable. Um, calculus, the same thing. I was just like miserable. And I was getting A's in all of my, you know, literature classes and all of my creative writing classes. And I was like, well, what am I doing? Like, why am I trying to major in something? And I'm definitely not going to be a doctor. Like I, if this is anything like organic chemistry, being a doctor, I don't, I can't, you know, I, this memorization part is just not something I'm going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So um, it was at, kind of at that time when there was an internship with the television academy that, well, actually, I, I met a whole bunch of people who lived in Los Angeles who were in the entertainment business, um, who became really good friends of mine. Um, and then an opportunity came up that they kind of let me know about for the television academy, the people that do the Emmy Awards every year. And um, I thought, well, you know, I could work in entertainment, like that would be something. And and kind of like, you know, you remind me about, you know, being into it as a kid, like that activated so much more potential and kid energy in me in entertainment than, you know, being a doctor ever did. So, um, I applied for the internship and I got the internship and it was sort of, it was kind of the first thing that I, that I got job wise or, you know, and then it was pretty selective. I mean, you know, they only pick like one person out of the whole country for every category. Yeah. And it was sort of the first kind of like big thing that I won or that I got. And it was sort of proof to my parents to be like, okay, look, I mean, I'm not going to be a doctor, but like I won this national thing and it's kind of big and, you know, I think I could do this. Um, and so I think because I did that, they were sort of more supportive. And also the fact that like the television academy was great. They paid you for the whole summer and paid you a, a stipend for living and travel. Wow. And so they basically sent me to LA and they still do this, by the way, it's a great internship program. If anybody's watching this and they want to at all get anywhere near entertainment. Um, they have, I think 20 or 30 categories of, um, you know, you can do or be a writer, you can be a director, you can, uh, I was a talent agent was where I went. Um, and it was just a great program. It was a really great program. And um, I think that was a kind of what my parents needed to sort of feel like, oh, okay, well, you can do something other than be a doctor. So you said talent agent. And so I'm assuming, so after you got this internship, you went to the entertainment business. And then after Emory, did you, did you go back to LA with the television academy? Yes. Yeah, so they gave me an internship and I had a, uh, I worked at CAA was one of the places that I interned. Mm-hmm. And then it was a small private agency. It's 
called the Cal Calvary Agency. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like a small agency. And then uh, I came back and I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to work at CA. That's where I want to be. And so I actually came back and finished Emory. I had two semesters left, but I crammed it all into one semester because I was like, I know what I want to do. I don't need to spend a whole year in school waiting to go do it. I'm going to work with the dean and figure out how I can cram everything into one semester. I had, I had more credits than, I mean, I sort of had a, had a schedule anyway because I brought so many AP courses and I, I was kind of ahead of schedule. But I, um, I did that so that I could go back and uh, take a job at CA. Mm -hmm. And were you a talent agent too? No, I mean, I was the junior peon of, you know, starting entry level people. I was, a, I was an assistant to a motion picture talent agent which meant, you know, I was physically and verbally abused for like two years straight. Um, there's, a, there's a movie called Swimming with Sharks that came out like right when I was doing this job. And like, they just don't allow things like this in the workplace anymore. But at the time they did. And I highly recommend the movie Swimming with Sharks okay. if anybody sort of wants to understand what it was like to work in the entertainment industry in the 90s. But it was, um, it was insanity what I sort of, was subjected to like and just not appropriate things all the way around I mean I was like literally physically abused and verbally abused like all day long every day but we did big things and I, you know I was whatever 21 years old and you know like calling Brad Pitt on the phone and you know I mean it was it was it was surreal in a lot of ways too so how would you like could you dive in and tell me more about your experience like being in LA 21 years old and like like absorbing all this like pop culture, Hollywood and all that stuff. Another question I have, to, I wanted to ask you is, many people think like LA is like, well, like the celebrities go and it's very fake and it's very like, it's a lot of fake happiness there and people do stuff for the status and the social status. Did you see that renewal in LA when you were working in the entertainment business or did you see something different? Like how, how like a normal citizen in America would see LA as? Oh, there was nothing normal about LA. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. And I, and I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't as shallow as people say. I think people really do believe in a lot of the things that are happening there. And you have to, I mean, it's a create, the whole city is a creative experience. So, you know, you're sort of creative, you're sort of creating yourself also. And that's part of it, you know, whether you're an actor or a producer or a peon assistant you're sort of creating your own mythology the whole time and there's all these mythologies running around you all the time so it's kind of magical and kind of amazing and like I mean to spend your 20s there I mean it was insane I mean you know I, I mean I would the things I did and saw and you know had an experience of like I would never trade for anything I mean in you know, and there were drugs and drinking and, you know, the whole, I mean, it was all of it, but, you know, I mean, fortunately I survived that part of it, but I, um, you know, I mean, it would, my friend would be like, oh, my friend Sophia Coppola is shooting a short film this weekend. Do you want to come over and like be in it? And I was like, okay, cool. And, you know, you would go and you would be in it and then you would hang out and then you, know, you would go to this thing and there would be like Joni Mitchell and Robert De Niro and you would hang out with them all night and drink with them. I mean, it was bananas you know and so um but you can't really you, there's no you can't really judge it 
to say it was, you know, fake or bad or any of the things. It was amazing. Um, and there were bad parts of it. And there were things where people definitely like would take advantage of you or, you know, not support you or be out for themselves. But I don't think that's any more than, anyway. you know, New York or Atlanta, you know? Okay. That's, that's good to know. And I, I, like, I like that. Uh, next question I have goes back with, with the Atlanta, goes back to being in LA. So like you said, like with the filmmaking interest you had when you were a child, right, creating stuff, do you feel like you were able to reconnect or reconnect with that inner child or reconnect with that childhood interest that you had back in LA? Did you, did you pursue any creative projects still? Or like, what did you do? And then, and then I know that you worked at Nickelodeon, so I wanted to, if you could talk about that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that because when I was in LA, I was, I was more on the business side of entertainment than I was on the creative side. The creative stuff was sort of, happening you know like with friends on the weekend working on short films and you know people making artwork or you know doing something creative um and I had a lot of friends who were directors and actors and um you know I would sort of be the thoughtful helper on their creative projects but most often from the business you know side of things but not I mean um but I think they knew I was creative as well because I was creative in that sense but it wasn't really until I moved to New York and really got back into hands-on producing and writing and directing um, that I really sort of felt that creative process back. And that's kind of why I left LA was because I had, I needed to make a decision and several of my friends made the same decision, but they made, you know, the opposite, they sort of took the opposite decision for me and they sort of left their business job in the entertainment business to be struggling and poor and creative. And many of those people have gone on to be billionaire, mm -hmm. showrunner, creative, you know, executive producers um, because they made that choice. I wasn't sort of confident enough, I think in my own abilities to do that. I was like, well, I, I need to find a job that lets me be creative um, rather than, you know, go wait tables like some of them did. and wait to get the big acting job or the big, you know, showrunner job or whatever. Um, and many of my friends went that other route and have been very successful doing that. And some of my friends stayed in that, um, that uh, business role and just moved up the ladder and now they're running studios. And, you know, um, you know, I, I haven't, I was part of a really great group of friends who I think had a lot of great potential and I'm definitely the least successful of all of them <laughs> um, again, but I was a team, I was a part of the team. Um, but, uh, but on the, but I went to New York to be more creative and that's what I was able to do at Nickelodeon for sure. Okay. What you just said, like be part of the team, the least creative, that reminded me back in soccer, like as a yeah. person, like you got, you got the yeah. award, but <laughs> then you, yeah, 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 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, could you let me know, like, what these friends are doing or, like, how, how was it, like, I, I can't even imagine, like, many people would want to be in that position, you were, like, being in that creative place, and, like, could you describe it more, like, let me, tell me more about, like, that journey that your friends took and maybe you witnessed of how they, of the creative process or, like, the struggle of being in LA and trying to, like, make it big in Hollywood? 
The people that I knew at the time who really made it big quit the inchworm ladder of moving up in the entertainment business. So a lot of us were at the same place. We were all like story editors at the studio or writer's assistants or assistants, you know, that kind of level. In fact, I was kind of ahead of all of my peers in the sense I was a story editor and a lot of people were just development assistants, but they made the very conscious choice to say, okay, I'm going to quit doing this and I'm going to start writing my own stuff and I'm going to start making my own films, you know, and that's a, that's a very scary thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to somebody, I don't know what you're doing. I think you should just get a job. And literally that person is probably the most successful executive producer right now. I mean, it's crazy. And, but you have to make that sacrifice. I think if you want to go that route, like, I don't know too many people who took the slowly go up the entertainment ladder. Oh, and on the side, make my career as a creative, you really got to jump off the boat and start making your own stuff and get to be a, a writer in a writer room, writer's room. You know, you got to you got to jump over to that side of things and and work up that ladder because the business of entertainment ladder doesn't really take you there. I know. Um, to, to to ask you so it's not you think you didn't take the jump because you went you moved to New York City to work for Nickelodeon but like witnessing your friends take the jump and I'm pretty sure you asked them like how did you think where did you, where did you think that courage all that the, the courage to make the committed decision i'm going to do this and i'm going to fail like i'm going to burn the ships behind me and i'm going to fight and win this wall that kind of like an analogy where do you think it came from for them like being from like a third perspective person or like how did you were you like inspired by them or like how did you feel like where did that where did that like entrepreneurial like creative spirit come from for them do you think um i was not inspired by them i thought they were being idiots <laughs> you know um and it seems like super, you know, and I just wasn't on the same path, yeah, you know, yeah. of that. But, uh, you know, but they just couldn't do the, the other stuff. I mean, they were so passionate about their own vision for things and their own projects that it was killing them to work on projects for other people, you know. And I think, um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really... I mean, I mean, it sure it took a lot of courage, but it also takes a little bit of stubborn mm -hmm. um, resistance to anything but what you're going to do. Um, so I don't, I, and I, you know, I don't think all of them knew that it would be a sure thing, you know. Um, and I assumed it would definitely not be a sure thing and that you were just going to end up like, you know, working minimum wage forever. Because uh, that's what they all did. Like, they were like, we waited tables and then like wrote on the side, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, but from, I would say like 90% of, 80% of those people, it worked out. Okay. And then I wanted to ask more about Nickelodeon. Yeah. So when you worked at Nickelodeon, what exactly did you do? And because what, what, I, I probably was watching Nickelodeon when you were working there. So what like shows mm -hmm. did you guys produce? Like what, what projects were you a part of? And like what, what was happening in Nickelodeon when you were there? Yeah, so I actually moved. So when I moved from LA to New York, I actually went through Atlanta again for just a minute, which is actually where I met my husband. But um, I worked at Turner there for just a minute because 
all the Turner Pictures people who are at Columbia Pictures, used to be a thing called Turner Pictures and they all became Columbia Pictures people. They connected me with some people at Turner. That was like a very short period of time. And then I moved to LA for Nickelodeon. But during that time in Turner and in, um, actually I don't want to skip over this because it's kind of important. Like in, in at Turner in Atlanta, uh, I worked for a woman named, um, named Andrea, and she, Andrea Taylor, was the head of marketing for TNT and TBS, which were pretty big at the time. And she really got me into entertainment marketing, okay. which I was not um, as into before. Um, I was more on the content creation side, and this was more in the marketing of content. And so she really helped, she really taught me that skill and how to do that. And that's what I went to Nickelodeon to do, was to do on-air marketing. Um, and uh, while I was there, I sort of grew in several ways, but basically was running all the on-air marketing um, for Nickelodeon and Nick Jr. Um, and Noggin. And all the branded content um, for that, which is like, you know, working with advertisers to create sweepstakes campaigns for kids or giveaways or, you know, that's what we were just doing sweepstakes back then. It's pretty much, that's what branded content was. Or like, you know, video, uh, theatrical releases, home videos and stuff like that. Um, and that was really where I sort of got back into the hands-on creative of coming up with a campaign to launch something. Um, you know, SpongeBob was really big when we um, were there. I'm sure you grew up watching SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. um you know when i was marketing spongebob we were the highest rated show on television period i mean we'd be we'd be like yeah we would do a spongebob special we would beat super bowl numbers in the u.s i mean it was pretty crazy um how many kids were watching nickelodeon we were marketing it and on and on um nick jr it was really you know blues clues and doors the explorer were huge we could get crazy numbers for like a Dora the Explorer special. I asked this because the podcast is about inner child and like childhood memories, childhood experiences. And you worked for Nickelodeon, like doing stuff with a childhood TV yeah. show and everything. So did you see like, because you, you were in the business part of it, but like even with the campaign, the creative campaign, did you feel like the company itself made you feel like a little child again, made you feel like, that you were like doing something creative, like storytelling, and then like the people who I don't I don't know if you know the people who like Nickelodeon's probably pretty big, like the people who created SpongeBob, the people who are like working on the TV shows or the content, like with the the storylines for those shows. Did you feel like those were also like very like was it like because I'm trying to compare this to like Pixar with Steve Jobs and then, like when he created Pixar, like all those individuals they were like very creative, very like open space, like whiteboards everywhere, like very creative process. So did you feel like the same thing at Nickelodeon? But I may be not be right asking the right question because you may be in a different department, but if you could elaborate. Oh, no, I mean, this is, I mean, I was, we were responsible not just for, you know, the marketing campaigns for shows. We were responsible for the channel. Okay. So the entire look and feel and experience of watching the channel was, that was, that was my responsibility as well. So um, it was incredibly creative. I mean, in fact, I, I think it was awesome because there were no limits to your creativity when you're doing a kids network. I mean, nothing was off the table. 
I mean, I mean, obviously you couldn't curse or, you know, do things that weren't appropriate for kids. And, you know, there were actually some kid vid laws that you had to sort of, you know, not, you know, inappropriately advertise to kids. But I mean, creatively, I mean, we did everything. I mean, we would do stop motion animation. We would do uh, watercolor painting. We would, you know, hire um, stunt people. I mean, we would do anything and everything. And you pick live was really, you know, just getting started when um, when I was there. I don't know if you watched you pick live, but you know, we also ran a, you know, basically four hour live show every day um, on top of um you know the programming and yeah we worked with the with all the creators directly i mean we um we worked uh with spongebob's creator and doris i mean those are the people that we were sort of um in some ways clients of ours so that we would make sure that their shows were success but they also responded to the things that we saw too and we would i mean we would be part of meetings um because our present was very collaborative and sort of brought in everybody to the to the um, process, but like, you know, we were deciding what shows were made and not made um, for the network because mm -hmm. we were all part of that process. I remember when I was watching Nickelodeon around this time, I'm assuming this is the early 2000s maybe, around? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to the last Airbender, the last Airbender was pretty big in Nickelodeon, I believe. And also there was the slime campaign where like the green slime stuff will, yeah. It, was that all you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I launched the last Airbender. I did all of that launch. Okay. Um, could you explain yeah. that? Because it's now on Netflix too. And like, I just rewatched the series and I, I love it. So how yeah. was that experience? Wow. I did, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, it, it was uh, based on a, I think it was based on a, book or a comic or something that the creator had been involved in before or maybe it was just a big pitch bible I don't remember but yeah I mean it was it was like a it, it was a world of things before worlds were a thing right okay. I mean yeah. you know like worlds sort of came along after you know Harry Potter and you know the reboot of Lord of the Rings that kind of all happened later and this was kind of the first world that um somebody kind of brought to to tv in a long time i mean i guess like transformers and that whole thing was a world in television before but um so it was a it was a big launch and I, you know it didn't do well at first i don't think it did as well as people had hoped but it built it built a very uh loyal following over time uh for sure and then yeah slime was um slime is sort of in nickelodeon's dna i mean it's sort of how it started I mean, back when i watched nickelodeon there was a thing called you can't do that on television and like they would dump slime on people that's sort of the the very earliest origins of slime but i did a project um and this was before i kind of took over and was running marketing it was when i first started nickelodeon it was like kind of my first project i actually traveled to all 50 states in the u.s sliming kids <laughs> and i would i would produce a show every single day of sliming kids in every state. And then that would air as part of You Pick Live, which was the live show that we did in Nickelodeon every day. Um, and that was really like, that was almost my, like my first job at Nickelodeon before I was really running anything. It was just running, I was running this one project, which is like its national tour of 
sliming kids. Um, and uh, that slime was like everywhere. And it's actually, it, I'm not gonna give you the secret formula of slime, but <laughs> part of it is food. I mean, there's like actually, there's, there's applesauce in it. And so you can't make it without actual applesauce. So, cause it, so it gives it kind of this weird texture, but um, you know, you basically have rotted applesauce on you like after days, you know, cause you're running around the country sliming kids and you're getting in this RV and pretty soon everything starts to smell like rotting apples. I mean, it's just sort of kind of funny. So how was that experience? Like what did you learn from like traveling to all 50 states, sliming kids? Like I could guarantee you 20 years back before that even happened, you wouldn't even thought that that would be a job. Like you were pre-med at Emory. Right. Yeah. Right. And now you're doing this. So like, how was that experience for you? Did you learn anything like, from the kids themselves maybe, or like from that experience, just sliming kids, was it, did it get repetitive after a while or was it like each experience something new? Um, it was very repetitive, Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, because we stayed in the same Holiday Inn Express oh. that was next to the same Cracker Barrel that, and we ate that, we would sleep there and eat there like every day. So it was like, it was, you know, in a lot of big TV shows, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, it's just a monotony of the same day, same day, same day. Um, but I think, I mean, what I learned from that, I think, was just sort of how to be a leader in um, a very, uh, a creative leader and still keep that inspiration going day after day after day and still keep the operational flow going, still, you know, balance oh, we got to get a whole show in today and ever after our meal at Cracker Barrel again, you know, that, that was sort of hard to kind of keep that going, but it was good. That's good. Okay. How, so you said it was hard, like being a creative leader in that sense. So how did you keep your team's momentum up? What did you do? Like, did was there any incentives or like, how did you, how did you lead them essentially? Well, um, I actually, you know, like sent in like a couple of episodes and um, the executive producer called me and was like, um, these are terrible. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we're just not like feeling it right now, yeah. you know, because it was kind of wearing on us. But he was like, yeah, well, you, they have to be, everyone has to be great. Every episode has to be great. And so I really pushed myself then to sort of, find the creative angle within each one and kind of deliver quality and something, something, and, and it sort of became like, and I've kind of used this, you know, when I ran my agency and everything else before, is like, you know, what's the one truly creative piece of this one piece of content, you know, and you can use that same thing over and over again, but like, what's the one thing that makes this like relevant or special or different, you know, and I think that was sort of how we kind of broke out of it was, you know, um, you know, and the next one that's a kid that was like, loved their cat, you know, and, you know, it, it could have just been the dumbest story about a kid and a cat, but like, we were like, okay, well, what's the funniest thing you can do with cat? I mean, like, what's the funniest thing that we could do? And like, what's the best thing we could do? So we made a little cat paw on a stick that matched the paw of the cat. They're like, you know, we uh -huh. sort of put the fur and made the fur look 
you know, similar. And then we would just have this cat paw do all these things like, you know, type on the computer and then like, you know, and it, and it just became this like fun thing that was so much better than, you know, what we were given. And we found this like one device that kind of broke it out from being a story about a kid and his cat. And then to being this like wild, fantastical, the cat doing all these crazy things thing. What you um, and then when I said that, when I said that one in, the executive producer was like, "Yeah, like everyone like this good." And I was like, "Oh my god, now now I got to keep that up." But, yeah. <laughs> so that reminds me of when you explained going back to your childhood, like with filmmaking, or like when you when when you were with your friends, like you had to do the with the resources you have, you had to create something. Yeah. So this is perfect scenario, like twenty thirty yeah. years later, maybe like with the resources you had, a cat, and then you had to create yeah. something. And then now it's like for money or down now it's for like some like actual substance kind of thing. So yeah. with that, like, I think we're getting here, some, getting something here. Like what entrepreneurial lessons did you learn from like your experience with Nickelodeon, your experience in the entertainment business and how did that help you set up to start off your agency? I think it's called Bok Bok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did that entrepreneurial stuff come together and how did you end up like creating Bok Bok? And like you could draw in from like your experiences with your father and your grandfather too, like those, because you said like when you were young, you had like you were surrounded by entrepreneurs and it was like it kind of it was just instilled within you. So like, what were these lessons? Like, what did you learn? Could you give any specific examples? Anything like that? Well, when I left Nickelodeon, I actually sort of did something else entrepreneurial, which is I helped start Logo, the LGBTQ network. Mm-hmm. I was sort of as a startup inside of MTV networks. Um. And uh, I definitely thrive more in entrepreneurial sort of startup environments where it's not the same thing every day. Like that was hard for me. You know, that is hard for me. Um, the having, you know, building something and starting something new is definitely what I, I'm much better at. And I think it is from my parents and my grandparents and, you know, just not having models of like, somebody who went to a nine to five job every day for 40 years. Like I knew nobody like that in my life. Um, so I didn't know how to make that interesting or I, I didn't even know what that was. I had no clue. Um, and also I'm like, I'm really bad at like office politics and, you know, political gamesmanship and big companies. Like I, I, I have time for none of that and I'm not very good at it because I had say what I think all the time. Like I am never gonna not say what I think um I'm like you know please fire me like if if Mm -hmm. if you disagree with me I'm probably in the wrong place so you know you need to know that I completely disagree with you so you can fire me because this is going to be a waste of everybody's time um so yeah I mean and and eventually that became a problem at Logo so Logo got started at MTV Networks and it got bigger and then it started to become like a job job and politics and all that stuff. And so that's when I left to start my own business again. So I was like, I can't, this is not me. I'm not, I'm not the politically savvy, hold on to the job for 20 years guy. Um, so I think that drove me to start Bark Bark in some ways, because I don't think it's because I have something. I mean, I've always looked at it as like, I'm an entrepreneur because I don't have those other things. Like mm. I have no ability to navigate politically within a big organization. I cannot do that at all. Like, and I don't want to know how to do that. Cause to me, it's shitty and sad. And, you know, yeah. like 
people die in that way, you know, because there's so much inauthenticity in the mix. And I, and, but, you know, we have to have people that are successful at it. So I don't mean to bash those people, but that's the way I see it is like, I, if I can't be true to what I believe and what I say, and if I have to somehow bite my tongue because you're my boss, that's just not going to work for me. I want to say we're both very similar in that sense. I, I, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a rebel in the sense that if I want to do something, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do what my boss, like I'm an RA right now. So like my boss, my boss quotation marks, what she wants to have right. to do or anything. And like with like my, with this podcast itself, like I want to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And I kind of like just like playing around with it and like seeing where it goes. It feels like a little like experiment, like like a little playground where like I get to play with the ideas, with the marketing, with the create, with the content creation, with how I market it, with the with the caption writing and everything. Got to see what works, what doesn't work, and like understand it. I rather do that rather than being told what to do. So, like my next question is like, being an entrepreneur was it? Be you you chose to become an entrepreneur. You didn't really choose. It, it, it fell upon you, like you said, with your dad or your grandfather. It fell upon you because you weren't really good at the other stuff. So, yeah. what what are you good at? Like, what do you think are your strengths and skills that helped you become a great entrepreneur? Um. So I take there's a I took this course which I highly recommend. It's a it's like on Coursera. It's the Yale's like happiness class or whatever mm-hmm. the. Yeah. Um, and it's a great class. Um, if anything, it just sort of helps you cement and figure out things that you kind of suspected all along, but you didn't really know. And one of the things that she gets you to do, uh, Professor Santos gets you to do, is like you take a, an assessment, and I forget which assessment it is, but it, it basically tells you your, your best skills, like where you are right now in life, these are your top talents. Um, and mine are perspective, uh, creativity, and I forgot the other one. Um, anyway, but perspective and creativity, and I, and I, I 100% agree with that. And you're always happiest, this is the theory of the class, is like if you are using your highest skills, if you're working in a way that you engage your highest skills all the time. And if there's a mismatch between your highest skills and what you're actually doing, that's why people a lot of times find themselves being unhappy because they're not activating the parts of themselves that are of highest use. But that, I mean, perspective is why I think I'm good at what I do. I really see things that other people don't see because they don't seem to see multiple perspectives or see it in perspective. Sometimes people are way over here thinking about something when the problem occurred over here, or people are all wrapped up in this thing when you're like, well, if you fix this thing, this thing gets fixed automatically. You know, I, these are the conversations I have all the time in my job. I always have. Um, and I think that's what, in an, in an entrepreneur in the way that I do things, I sort of get brought in to solve creative problems or brought in to solve a problem having that perspective talent is really good. You know, that, that's why I get hired Mm -hmm. um, because I can't bring that. And, and, and that having the perspective and being able to solve that creatively um, that I think is, is, is what my skills are all about. So perspective and creativity, 
I'm going to ask this question because and then I'm going to explain like why I asked this question later on because it's what I believe in but do you feel like as a child you were pretty good with finding you're pretty good at creativity and pretty good at looking at things in different perspectives and finding the things or did it develop as you grew older I mean definitely I was creative as a kid I mean even you know even when I was like doing computer stuff it was always creative problem solving to like get around something or um you know building a fort or like everything i did as a kid i i was a very creative kid um you know filmmaking um i did a lot of acting when i was in like high school and college like i was just like a creative person but i i never thought of like a creative career cuz i kind of thought wow oh, that's risky you know um but the but there was a lot of creativity when i was a kid for sure Okay. And what about the perspective like looking at things in different perspectives? Yeah, I mean I think that's probably something I've developed over time. I mean, I can't think of an example as a kid where I did that. But I mean, a lot of times like uh I mean, I think a, a couple of things I wrote as a kid um I would write things for like a literary magazine, you know, whatever and um there's a lot of perspective in those, I think. certainly beyond where i sort of i was definitely beyond that skill in my age range and i think i definitely had more perspective than a lot of kids my age i was also really naive you know as a kid like i had you know i wasn't like you know doing cocaine as a ninth grader so like i was you know i was pretty i was pretty insulated from you know any sort of less than zero childhood i mean i was definitely So I I didn't have I wasn't I didn't have a worldly perspective but I definitely would have I sort of for where I was experience wise I, I had a lot of perspective. I like I like your answer idea and I want to dive into the Yale happiness class just a bit more because you said that we we are not happy when we are not doing the skills that like that are given to us or like that we good at or that we that our strengths essentially. But like in our society like in the society we live in do you do you think or do you see that many individuals they do jobs or they take jobs they choose a career because of the societal status the career gives to them and not because of the skills that they the skills or the passions they have with that career because that's for me as as being a pre-med student at Emory and seeing like everyone choose different careers and like like pick, like choose like I'm going to do this after college I'm going to do this after college like all these different things I feel like like we're becoming molded into like molded into like what society wants us to do and we're not finding that creativity that little like inner voice or like what what our true happiness is instead we're doing this like oh I need to do scribing I need to do like shadowing I need to do these different things because that's what expect what that's what's expected of me and then once once I become a doctor like I would cheat what I want which is totally fine if that's what you want but for me I, I always wanted to be more than a doctor I don't want to just like and my career would just being a doctor I want to do other different stuff as well. So what do you think regarding that like being like in that in that being a college student seeing these like different crossroads or like different intersections or different passions and like understanding what our our happiness is and how society's expectations sometimes oversees our own happiness and decides what we should do or what what society wants us to do. Any thoughts on that? I don't know if I was very clear with that. Yeah, no. I mean I I mean it's sort of like what if i 
hadn't quit pre-med yeah. and, you know, I had, the, I had these skills, which probably, you know, and I'm sure you can apply any of those skills to any profession in some ways, but, you know, I don't know that there's, I mean, I'd have to be in the medical field where I was working on perspective and creativity as opposed to, you know, being a neurosurgeon or something, you know, I don't, and I also don't know that much about those professions to, to say much about it, but I, I think, I think it is important to sort of find out what you're good at and you feel it. I mean, that's the thing too, is like, you know, when you're doing things you love, like time just disappears. Like you just, you know, like I can do what I love to do. And, you know, even if it, you know, even though it's work, I don't, I mean, like I'll do it for free on the weekends. Like, you know, it's, I love it. You know, like I love, you know, solving complicated problems and I love, you know, finding a creative solution to something that nobody else thought of. And like, I will hundred percent do that, you know, for free. Um, but, you know, I definitely know when I'm doing the parts of my job that I have to do that I'm not very good at. Um, you know, I kind of feel myself getting drained and, um, you know, like there's a whole, you know, client schmoozing, like entertain, you know, entertainment, you know, thing that has to happen, you know, for anybody that runs a business with clients. And I hate that stuff. Like I, I like to be friends with the people I'm working with, but I don't, I don't like the whole process of, you know, entertaining clients. Like I, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of clients that I work with. Um, and I would like to hang out with them and go do something with them. But even the idea of planning it and just, you know, I don't know, but I guess your question was for students that are finding their future. I mean, I definitely think you should, you know, at least take the test and see if it matches, you know, some of the things that you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. And then one thing that you mentioned towards the end kind of reminded me of something that I felt too, like with just moving with the clients, like it's, it's like it's mostly like the small talk and like trying to like impress them, stuff like that. I kind of felt that when I try to do, I try to do a little, a little like recruiting for like consulting internships. And I kind of felt like that when I was trying to recruit, like contact someone on LinkedIn, for example, or like, uh, like the conversations I, I was having with them wasn't very authentic for me because I knew I was having the conversation to try to get a job. They knew I was having the conversation to try to get a job. And I was coming up with questions like on the spot or like planning questions to ask them. And it didn't like that entire like recruitment networking thing didn't feel very authentic to me. But what did feel authentic is like the conversations I'm having with you right now, or like conversations that I care about, or like there's like a deep personal connection with that this is not like the hidden like self-interest, like I'm doing this for this, I'm doing this for a job. It's more like I'm doing this so I could learn from you, I'm doing this so we could both get value from each other kind of thing. So I guess that's just my observation. Uh, if there's if that has any thoughts with you, you could reply, or if not, then we could just move, move on to the next question. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think that's exactly what I'm saying is that, you know, I guess, I mean, I'm just really bad at being inauthentic in general. And it was much more so with my, with the agency I ran before with Bark Park. Mm -hmm. Now my clients are all amazing, like do-gooder people who are, you know, they're very easy to hang out with and get along with. But when it was, you know, sort of agency, other agency people and, 
media buying companies and network people. It was just like, it was just a pain to have to like kind of entertain people. It was, um, I hated it. Yeah, yeah I really did. I but I have about like 10 more minutes because I do have to three through. That's, yeah. yeah. Then we yeah. could move on. I have two more questions real quick. And then yeah. we move on. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could travel back in time and visit younger Brian, what advice would younger Brian give you to the person you become today? So not what advice would you give him, but what advice would he give you? Spend more time in the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I um, I definitely definitely can feel when I'm in like a when the childhood me is happy. You know, is is you know. Um, doing things that he likes to do um yeah and, and also I, I mean I also think he would tell me to spend more time with other kids because uh like I my brother has three kids and I kind of treat him like my kids uh -huh. and like every time I'm around them like I'm reminded about like how much I loved being a kid and so um I think my childhood self like loves doing stuff with them and you know like taking them to Disney World and you know like doing all the things I love to do as a kid. And um, so I think my child itself would say spend more time with them for sure. I agree with that, yeah. Because I feel like kids in this sense, they have that unburgled, like they could do what they want to do whenever they want to do it. Like every single day is a new adventure for them. It's not like monotone daily routine kind of stuff. And I try to do that every day too. Like I try to bring my inner child inside of me to like influence what I do today or something like that. So like, that, that kind of what influences my creativity, like what drives my creativity. And then the last question I have for you is, what was you, or what is your favorite childhood movie and all book and why? Hmm. Um, my favorite childhood movie. Um, I watched so many movies when I was a kid. I mean, like I literally, because like VCRs were new when I was a kid. And so we would watch the same movie over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. Um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was like my favorite movie. I watched it a million billion times. I know every single line pretty much from the beginning to the end. I could pretty much just start right now and do like even the lines of like, people who are speaking, speaking other languages, like I know this too. Like, wow. I, I mean, we watched it 50,000 times. So that was a kid. And then I loved, um, I loved those, uh, there were like a couple of like adventure movies that came out like when I was a kid, like um, Flight of the Navigator, which was like this crazy bananas movie. Uh, there was a, um, oh, what was that movie? Uh, the Never Ending Story. That was a huge movie um, that I watched like a million times. So like, there were a lot of adventure movies when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And why do you think you were like attracted to these adventure movies? Like what about the adventure made you so like enthralled with it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that was sort of the, the thing about nature too, is it always felt like there was like kind of an adventure, you know, sort of, the confines of, um, and maybe this is true, like of me not liking big companies and structure and all those kind of things. Like that sort of feels like 
the universe is possible. You know, you can go out and accomplish anything. There's no, you know, you don't check with your boss, you know, um, like I feel like in adventures, there's no boss, right? Yeah, I like, <laughs> like that. That's just not part of that equation. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a beautiful way to end this podcast episode. In adventures, there's no boss. And for our listeners, I hope you find some adventure in your day-to-day lives in quarantine today and or whenever you're listening. And Brian, I just want to say thank you very much for being thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, I did. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. And then for our guests, if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you could subscribe and rate to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye.